Thank you so much. All right, I want to make sure, can everyone hear me all right? Excellent. And now I have to make sure that the clicker's working, which is always important before one starts the talk. All right. So uh, thank you very much, Roger. Thanks as well to Eric, to Carol, who I wish you were here, but who did a lot of the logistics getting me here, to everyone else at Hagley who helped set this up, and of course to all of you for braving the elements and joining me to talk about the TVs of tomorrow. Uh, out of curiosity, are there any uh, electrical engineers in the audience? Okay, keep your hands up for just a second. Uh, any chemists or chemical engineers? Thought there would be a few of those around here. Uh, physicists? Anybody who worked for RCA? I have to check these days. <laughs> all right, before we begin, those of you who raised your hands, I just want to make sure that we're all on the same page. So I'm going to provide a, a brief disclaimer for those of you with a technical background in the audience. And here it is. This is a historical discussion. I am not a chemist, a physicist, or an electrical engineer. As Roger pointed out, I'm trained in the history of science. So if you came here expecting a discussion of the relative merits of the aniline p-aminophenyl acetate compounds that were used in the first liquid crystal displays, or their uh, successors, the cyanobiphenyls that were used later, you're going to be dreadfully disappointed. <laughs> Nevertheless, I hope that there will be sufficient technical content here to keep you engaged for the next 45 minutes or so as we consider a fascinating case study in the history of innovation. So today, when we think about high-tech innovation, we think about firms like these, right? We think about Google or Intel, Hewlett-Packard or Apple. Firms that benefited from the unique combination of venture capital, military funding, the presence of educational institutions like Stanford, and various interconnected social and financial networks that allowed Silicon Valley to become the center of the American electronics industry. But it's worth remembering that that wasn't always the case. Today's technological trendsetters may be based on the West Coast, but the American electronics industry really emerged, I would argue, in the East, and specifically in the great state of New Jersey. Yes, before Silicon Valley, there was New Jersey. Now, probably all of you are familiar with Thomas Edison and his workshops first at uh, Menlo Park and then the laboratories at West Orange, where they developed the light bulb and the phonograph and all those other things you learned about in school. Those of you who have some familiarity with the history of electronics are almost certainly aware of the building that is on your right, the, uh, the facility in Murray Hill uh, constructed by Bell Labs. Right? That's the birthplace of the transistor, information theory, the Unix programming language, several uh, early communication satellites, solar panels, and on and on and on. These are two... I would say these are the two most famous of the electronics research labs that were in New Jersey, but they are not alone. You can travel up and down the state and you'll find more and more of them the more you look. From the Western Electrical Instrument Company up in Newark down to the U.S. Signal Corps lab in Fort Monmouth. But if you were a typical consumer in the United States during the 20th century, the research lab the electronics research lab in New Jersey that had the most direct impact on your day-to-day -day life was the one run by the Radio Corporation of America. From the end of World War I until the 1980s, RCA was the undisputed leader of the American consumer electronics industry. In 1926, it was the firm that established the first radio network in the country, NBC. And in 1939, the company's president, who you can see sitting in front of an NBC microphone there, David Sarnoff, 
famously got up at the New York World's Fair and announced that the, that the company would begin the first regularly scheduled television broadcasts in the United States. After World War II, Sarnoff helped to organize a research laboratory, a central research lab for RCA in Princeton, New Jersey. And that facility's technical staff would ultimately develop the all-electronic color television system that we are familiar with today. In fact, some of you may remember back in 2009, the uh, digital changeover. You remember that? Before then, the, the broadcasting standard that we relied on, that was developed at that lab in Princeton. That's probably the best known technology to come out of there. It wasn't the only one. Right now, for example, all of you probably have in your pocket a phone or some other personal device that has integrated circuits filled with these. These are called CMOS circuits, complementary metal oxide semiconductor, and they're the foundation of pretty much every modern microprocessor there is, and they were developed at least initially in Princeton. A few years ago, another technology that came out of Princeton, the blue LED, actually won the Nobel Prize in physics. RCA Laboratories was also the birthplace of a now omnipresent technology that was first introduced at a press conference 50 years ago, the liquid crystal display. And you can see the leader of the project that developed that technology there, his name is George Heilmeyer, and he's demonstrating one of these devices at the press conference. James Hillier, whose name is at the bottom of the slide here, he was the vice president in charge of RCA Laboratories, and he got up and he gave a, a quick overview of what Heilmeyer was demonstrating. He said that an interdisciplinary group of chemists, physicists, and electrical engineers had figured out a way to take this obscure set of substances, liquid crystals, and turn them into an electronic display device, one which had several advantages over existing cathode ray tubes. You can see one big one right here, right? Look how thin that is. If you owned a big CRT TV or a monitor that was on your desk, you remember how far back it went and how heavy it was? Look how thin this is. Moreover, this device, uh, you'll notice Heilmeier's doing something here. He's shining a light on it. And the reason he's doing that is because this display doesn't emit any light of its own. It's reflecting light that's, that's shining on it. And that means it's very low power, which suggests a variety of different applications. Hillier rattled off a few, things like calculators, wristwatches, stock tickers. He even suggested you could have, imagine this, a portable flat screen TV that you could take to the beach. And in between bikini watching, you could see the, uh, the Mets figure out a new way to lose a ball game. Hillier concluded the press conference by noting that we have high hopes that they, liquid crystal displays, will reach their full potential. And when they do, you will learn about it at an RCA press conference similar to this one. As it turns out, that prediction was half right. For over a decade now, liquid crystal display televisions have outsold traditional cathode ray tube sets. They have definitely reached their full technological potential. They are the basis of a massive multi-billion dollar global enterprise. And to give you a sense of the scale, Think about all the devices that have flat screens that you use every day. Telephones, right? Laptops, if you have a portable video game system, wristwatches, calculators, and so forth and so on. If we just look at the television market, just televisions, sales in 2016 were over $83 billion, right? which is quite a lot of money. 
But one company that wasn't earning any of that money was RCA. Because less than a decade after they unveiled the first liquid crystal displays to the public, they decided to get out of the business entirely. And a decade after that, RCA itself was gone, sold to General Electric. So there's this paradox here, right? RCA was the first mover with this technology. They created it. They were right there at the outset of a burgeoning new industry. And they were never able to uh, really make it successful for them. This contradiction, this paradox, is what really drew me to the project when I first arrived at the David Sarnoff Library, the technical archive that RCA maintained at its old laboratories in Princeton. And that was in December of 2007. This is what the reading room looked like, and that, well, that's me. <laughs> much, uh, much younger than I am now. Um, I went in there not really knowing exactly what I wanted to study. I knew that they had a vast array of technical material. I knew that it was right near the campus of Princeton University where I was getting my degree. I knew that I needed to find primary sources for my second year research paper. And I knew that I was interested broadly in electronics, but I had no idea beyond that what I was going to do. So I asked the director of the library at the time, a man named Alex Magoon, and he suggested maybe I look at LCDs. And he, I said, LCDs, what about LCDs? He said, well, they were invented here, in this building. I said, I had no idea. And most people don't know that, that the LCD was actually invented here in the United States or in New Jersey. So with that, I started to dig. And you can get a sense of the scale of my digging from that table in the picture there. Uh, those are all laboratory notebooks, the books with the red spines on them. And that was just the tip of the iceberg. The more I dug, the more I found, the more I found, the more I had questions. How was I supposed to explain what had happened? This was a case study of successful invention but failed innovation, right? They came up with the technology, but they weren't able to bring it to market. This was a story of failed intra-firm technology transfer. How do you get a technology from the workbench into the factory and out to the people? And from my perspective as a historian, how do you reconstruct that story and figure out what went wrong? Oh, and one other thing. How do you do that knowing that when you've started your dissertation in the beginning of 2009, the company that oversees the facility, because RCA is out of business, so a new company had taken over, SRI International, and they've decided they don't want to maintain their library anymore. And they're going to be closing it down by the end of the year. Also, the museum that they've maintained, with over 6,000 artifacts, that's going to be closing too. And you have no idea, if you're the researcher, where it's going to go. Now, the good news is they, both of these found a home. The artifacts ended up at the College of New Jersey in Ewing, uh, where it is now maintained as the Sarnoff Collection. And the documents came here. They came to Hagley. And that's a really wonderful thing, not just because of Hagley's stated mission to preserve the history of American enterprise, but because this is very much an East Coast story. Hagley had already uh, acquired materials from RCA's collections in Camden. This was the right place for it to go. And they were also one of the only archives out there that had experience enough with large business collections to make sense of it for future researchers. But that, unfortunately, would not help me, because at the time I was working on this, it was all just getting boxed up. So I took as many photographs and scans and uh, you know, got as much of it as I could preserve before it all got sent away. 
And then I started working. And it was a good thing I had captured all that because you can tell this story in a few different ways. You can rely on published accounts. And that's what many people have done. They've relied on journal articles or patents like these, but these tell very particular types of stories, right? These are written with particular audiences in mind and with particular goals in mind. For example, a journal article like this one, this is one of uh, the earliest articles on the liquid crystals that Heilmeier and his team wrote. This is meant to tell you, as a scientist or engineer, how you can reproduce their results. It isn't meant to tell you what originally inspired the research. It isn't meant to tell you what mistakes they made. And except for maybe an acknowledgement section at the end, it's not meant to tell you who they collaborated with in any detail, right? Patents also have their own flaws. A patent is all about staking out a claim to intellectual originality, so you're not as likely to provide a full glimpse behind the curtain because that might risk undermining your claim. It's still really useful, but it's only one piece of the story. If you want to know more about the process by which these things were created, and not just the product, right? This is all assuming that there's an end point and that the end point is obvious. If you want to know how we got to that end point, then you need to dig into the archives. And this is why facilities like the Hagley Library are so valuable, because they have, well, they have tons of these sources for people to play with. Things like technical reports, right? Regular interim checks that provide progress updates on what was going on with a particular project. Or, and Roger already referenced this in the introduction, lab notebooks. I did read a lot of lab notebooks. And some of them, like this one, this is George Heilmeyer's, and if you look, this is actually pretty neat. The handwriting is very clean. Sometimes it was like reading hieroglyphics. But the more of them that I read from different people working on different aspects of the project, the more complicated and nuanced the story became. And I was able to supplement this with archival material in other places, scattered all over the country. I traveled out to Ohio, to uh, Kent State University, which maintains the Liquid Crystal Institute and has their own collection of papers there. I did work, as Roger said, at the Chemical Heritage Foundation, where they have some useful materials that I drew upon. And I also went down to the Smithsonian, where they not only had documents, they had artifacts. Because if you're a historian of technology, documents are certainly one sort of primary source you want to work with, but you definitely, if you can, want to look at the physical objects to see how different technical challenges prompted different changes in design. Right? How do you solve these things? It's embedded in the artifact itself. Here, for example, is a very early flat panel display that RCA created. This is from 1966 or so, and it's at the uh, Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton. And you can see I worked with a couple of people there to try to turn on a couple of the pixels. Uh, they're not very bright. We were kind of cautious. We didn't want to burn out anything. Uh, but I did want to make sure that you saw that color, that kind of green indiglowish color. Um, so you could see what they were thinking about back then. The other thing that I was lucky uh, in choosing my research topic was I was fortunate that I picked a topic that was recent enough and geographically local enough that several of the people who worked on the project were still living near me when I began the research. And I reached out to them, and they invited me to these monthly lunches. You can see this picture here. And I sat down with a group that uh, was involved with the project, and many of them agreed to sit down and, and let me interview them. Several of them 
in addition to sharing their first-person reflections, also had photographs, personal documents, and even a couple of artifacts that I had never seen before. I was extremely fortunate to have the chance to get to know these people. Because if I hadn't dug into that, I wouldn't have been able to tell the story that I ended up putting into the book, which is one that tries to emphasize both the, the uh, perspectives of management and the perspectives of scientists and engineers and technicians when it comes to making corporate research decisions, when it comes to formulating R&D policies. All right? Often, when people have told the story about the LCD, it gets boiled down to a management story. Essentially, the scientists come up with this great idea, and management screws it up. You might have heard stories like this before in other contexts. That is entirely valid in some respects, but I would argue that it's, uh, it oversimplifies things. Because management makes its decisions after consulting with scientists and engineers. They don't work in a vacuum. If they want to understand the uh, commercial potential of a new technology, they're not going to pull it out of the air or try to figure it out themselves. They'll talk to the scientists and the technicians who've actually put it together, who can tell them this thing has promise. They will define the boundaries of technological possibility within which strategic decisions are made. So if you tell the management side, you're only telling one piece of it. And that's why I was really glad I was able, this was a, a rare opportunity to tell both sides as best I could and tell a very rich story uh, with a lot of back and forth. Because as you'll see, these scientists and engineers were crucial in persuading management that it was worth investing in liquid crystals, at least initially. And they also played a role in the decision to leave the business, which doesn't always get discussed. But before I can get to that, why would RCA be interested in a flat panel display in the first place? Well, then as now, the consumer electronics industry was driven by obsolescence. Radio, once everyone had a radio, would be replaced by television. Once black and white television was in everyone's home, RCA was, was betting they would go and buy color. That's why they invested so much in it. But what happens once everybody gets a color set? Well, maybe flat panel televisions were the wave of the future. That was certainly the opinion of David Sarnoff, who in 1951 gave a famous speech. And I won't go into too much detail on it here. It's the first chapter of my book. Essentially, he asks the members of his research staff at a ceremony uh, renaming RCA Labs in his honor. And you can see this plaque back there. That is still on the wall uh, if you go visit the, uh, the facility today. It's still there. And he asks them for what he calls a light amplifier. He refers to it as Magnalux. And no one knows what a light amplifier is exactly. He says that it's going to allow for the creation of brighter pictures for television, which could be projected in a home or the theater on a screen of any desired size. What scientists and engineers take that to mean over time is he wants to break free of the cathode ray tube, which has limits on the size you can make it because of how heavy it gets and how big and bulky. Maybe they could make a TV picture of any size if they made it flat so you could hang it like a picture on the wall. That sounds plausible. And by 1956, they actually start coming up with prototypes to try to make this work. And if you want to see what those prototypes were and what ultimately got delivered to Sarnoff, well, then you're going to have to look in the book. But I will show you some examples of how this would inspire, essentially, 
a decade's worth, more than that, quarter century's worth, I might argue, of research into flat panels at RCA. By 1959, RCA was putting advertisements into magazines like Popular Science that literally were asking, how'd you like to hang your TV picture on the wall? And you can see here one of their early attempts from 1960. This looks pretty good, right? Mural television cabinet. You can see her changing the channel there. It's really nice, but there is one small problem. That is just a regular TV. They have cut a hole in the wall, and they have shoved the TV into it. And RCA was offering to come and custom install mural TV cabinets like that into your house, which is pretty nice, but not really a technological breakthrough. The one on the right, though, that is a bit of a technological breakthrough. The gentleman there is named Bernard Lechner, and you can see him staring up at the camera. And if you look closely, you'll see his face reflected on the TV down in the bottom. That's another one of those displays, like the one I showed you a few slides ago from Wright-Patterson. It's a higher resolution version, 1,200 pixels, that same kind of greenish glow, so monochrome, but it was capable of showing moving TV images on a flat panel in 1966. All right? That was a proof of concept that really hooked people in. But here's the ironic twist. Because RCA ultimately did, as you've seen, come up with a technology that would enable a TV that hung on the wall, the liquid crystal. But the research track that led to it had nothing to do with these. It had nothing to do with television at all. Instead, it had to do with lasers. All right, here's a younger George Heilmeyer. In 1961, he joins the staff at RCA. He graduated with an engineering degree from the University of Pennsylvania, goes up, joins RCA staff, and is getting his PhD at Princeton. They had a program where you could work on your PhD and work at the labs. He's interested in lasers, which were seen as the big new thing. As he wrote later, the laser had emerged on the scene at about this time and was commanding most of the attention at the laboratory. I wanted some of the action. Now, why were people so excited by lasers, other than the fact that they're lasers? Well, lasers, people at RCA thought, might be useful in communication systems, if you could figure out a reliable way to modulate the beam. They had modulators, that is to say, devices that would let you uh, control the power or the polarization of a beam of laser light, but they were inorganic crystals, which were difficult to grow and inefficient to use. They took a lot of power, sometimes both. Um, so Heilmeier thought maybe he could come up with a better solution by using organic materials. Are there any organic chemists in the audience tonight? Organic materials, he thought, might be easier to tailor or customize for his particular need. So you could try a lot of different things. You could grow it a little bit more simply, perhaps. So he starts growing these ingots of organic semiconductor, and they don't work at all. They're brittle, they're water-soluble, they, they break down pretty quickly. It's just not a pleasant experience trying to put those into a laser. But he doesn't give up hope. Instead, he goes to his notebook. And this is an excerpt from Heilmeier's notebook, which is housed right here. I should note, by the way, I forgot to say this earlier. You see the DSL at the bottom of this slide? That means it's from the David Sarnoff Library Collection and therefore here at Hagley. So anytime you see a picture that's from, or that's labeled like that, that means it's here. So if you wanted to see it in person, you could make a request and go down into the reading room and pull it out. But not right now. Right now, I've bought it for you, and I've enlarged it so that you can see Heilmeier's new approach, which involved liquids. Liquids, I hear you say. How do you put that into a laser? 
All right. So Heilmeier knows that there are certain kinds of liquids that if you shine light through them, they can affect its polarization somewhat. Polar solvents are particularly good at this. A polar material, for those of you who have forgotten your high school chemistry, uh, we're talking about molecules that have a positive charge on one end and a negative charge on the other, and they're separated by a little bit. All right? Still with me? That's as technical as this talk is going to get for the rest. Right? So Heilmeier says, what if we put a bunch of polar liquid into a container and introduce a dye? The polar molecules are those rectangles up here. The dye molecules are little circles. Then, imagine what would happen if we applied an electric field across the sample. All those polar molecules would line up very straight in rows, like you can see down there, and the dye molecules would be in between them. Heilmeier's thought was, if you put the right dye in there, you might be able to use the local electric field between the molecules to split the spectrum of the dye and change its color and modulate it, essentially. Or, if you used a special kind of dye, you could get one that rotated physically and would change color depending on its orientation with polarized light. That is, light that's moving all in one direction. Okay? So this is the idea. He goes, he says, I'm going to try this with a compound called nitrobenzene. He puts it together, he runs the experiment, and lo and behold, it fails. And he almost gives up hope. He needs to find a new material, a new solvent, that is more effective at lining up his dyes. And to understand where he found it, we have to go across the world and a few years back in time. So join me, won't you, as we travel to Prague in 1888. If you were to visit Prague in 1888, and if you were to stop by the German university there, particularly the Institute of Plant Physiology, as one might, just wandering around, you would encounter this gentleman here on the left. His name was Friedrich Reinitze. He was an Austrian botanist studying carrots, and specifically all the different chemicals that you can extract from carrots. He wanted to figure out their physical properties and, ideally, their chemical formula. One day, he's working on a compound called cholesterol benzoate, which is related to cholesterol, which you're all probably familiar with. And he starts going through, and one of the first things he does, as a chemist will tell you, you check the melting point of the material. So he takes a, a piece of this stuff, he puts it over a flame, and he heats it up, and something strange happens. When he heats it up, at around 146 degrees Celsius, it turns from a solid into a kind of cloudy liquid. And then, he heated it up further, and at around 179 degrees, the liquid turned clear. And when he cooled it off, it went back. So it went from clear to mid-range cloudy to cloudy to solid. That is weird. Compounds are supposed to have one melting point, right? One point where they turn from a solid to a liquid. This is unusual. And Reinitzer was unprepared to explain what was going on. So he reached out to an expert. He turned to a crystallographer and chemist named Otto Lehmann. And he sent him some samples and a letter, and he said, can you explain what's happening here? And Lehmann was known for being a very careful observer and a man who actually built his own specialized microscopic equipment. I should clarify, microscope equipment, not tiny equipment, equipment to use to look at things. Right? So he takes some of this sample, he puts it onto a heated microscope stage of his own design, so it stays within the range between those two temperatures before it turns clear, but after it turns cloudy. Right? 
and he looks at it under the microscope, first with regular light and then with polarized light, because as a crystallographer, he knew crystals affected polarized light in very specific ways. And you could say something about uh, how they were organized. And what he discovered was between those two temperatures, you had something that could pour and flow like a liquid, and something that refracted light like, an optical, like a, uh, a crystalline solid. It had the optical properties of a solid. And so he referred to it as, a, as or he referred to samples like this, as fließende Kristalle, flowing crystals. Later, he would adopt a new name that was coined by a colleague, flüssige Kristalle, liquid crystals. So that's what liquid crystals are. We're about halfway into the talk, and now you finally know. Now, this inspired a great deal of research in the latter part of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century. But by World War II, liquid crystals were seen as something of a laboratory curiosity. You might find something about them in the appendix of a chemistry textbook, but you didn't really see them as anything that was seen as important, and the industrial applications were basically nil. One person who was interested in them and who learned about them in graduate school was one of Heilmeier's colleagues, a man named Richard Williams. Williams was interested in the effects of electric fields on the absorption spectra of solid crystals. So how did applying electric fields near a solid crystal change how the light was transmitted through them? He worked with a bunch of different materials, and he had some good luck with his research. And having heard about liquid crystals in graduate school, he thought, maybe I'll try it with those two. This is a picture from his lab notebook, and you can see it looks essentially like a sandwich. He took a sample of a material called para-azoxyanisole, PAA. He put it between two pieces of glass, which were lined with a transparent conductive coating on the inner surface. Put them together. Put that on a heated microscope stage, just like uh, Lehman did. And then heated it up to around, well, somewhere between 110 and 140 degrees Celsius. Applied a voltage across it and looked at it with polarized light to see how its optical properties had changed. And at first, absolutely nothing happened. But he steadily ramped up the voltage. And at around 1,000 volts per centimeter, here's what he saw through his microscope. It was sudden. At 1,000 volts per centimeter, those weird rectangular-ish patterns up at the top formed. And when he turned off the field, they went away. He could switch them on and switch them off. And interestingly, they blocked the passage of light. He referred to these regions as domains, and today we call them Williams domains in his honor. And Williams realized that these domains, if they were blocking the passage of light, well, that could be used in a display. So it was Richard Williams who ultimately wrote the first liquid crystal display patent that RCA ever uh, authorized. And he also wrote a couple of articles describing the idea, or at least what he had found in terms of the domains. I don't think he actually got into the TV stuff in the articles. For obvious reason, RCA would probably want to keep that a little quiet. So then he went around to his colleagues and he said, could we turn this into a display? And they said, no, for a bunch of different reasons. One, liquid crystals are weird. We're used to working with inorganic materials most of the time. Organic electronics is still a kind of new thing, so that's strange. Two, you have to heat these things up to 110 degrees. Can you imagine a TV filled with 110 degree, and remember this is Celsius, so above boiling point of water, liquid crystals? 
That's not going to fly. Williams tried for a little bit, but after a while, he gave up. He had other projects he wanted to pursue. In 1963, he went on a sabbatical to, to Switzerland, and when he came back, he met George Heilmeyer, who was just wrapping up his, his experiments trying to modulate laser light and was looking for a new solvent that would manipulate his dyes better. And he said, well, after talking with Williams, maybe liquid crystals are the way to go. So he takes a liquid crystal solvent, which he refers to as a host. He dissolves a guest dye, as he calls it, into it. He applies a voltage. And he finds out, after working with a technician named Louis Zanoni, that you can apply the coatings in interesting patterns, that you could do things like this. Do you see the RCA logo there? They called that the meatball. Right? And they called this effect guest host color switching, or electronic color switching. And Heilmeier sees this and says, this has applications beyond lasers. We might be able to do something with this. Maybe we can turn it into a display. Not just a display, maybe a color display. Now, this isn't a perfect system. He would have admitted that at the time. There were a limited number of dyes out there. They tended to break down in high temperature, which isn't great. And this relies on polarized light, which any of you who have ever watched a 3D movie lately or used polarized sunglasses will tell you means that the brightness is cut back considerably. Heilmeyer would have preferred to have something that didn't rely on polarized light, and he found one. He found a different effect. It was one that Williams had actually observed but never pursued. If you kick up the voltage another order of magnitude beyond what you needed to make domains, the liquid crystals would actually start to become turbulent. And that turbulence would scatter light. And to give you a sense of how it looked, this is one of these new displays on the right side before you turn the power on. Here's what it looks like after you turn the power on. The newspaper down there at the bottom is to provide uh, comparison, to give you contrast between the, uh, the uh, display up there and a printed page, right? And you can see it's a pretty stark black and white image up at the top. Right? This was what Heilmeier and his team decided to pursue and transform into a commercial product. And this was the basis of a secret research group that formed an RCA in 1965. For three years, they worked in silence. They occasionally went to conferences or published papers, but they, were, they did not publish about any display application related to liquid crystals until the press conference I told you about in 68. These are some of the key people. They are not all of the key people by a long shot uh, involved in the, in the group. Uh, the two flanking Heilmeier here, Joe Castellano and uh, Joel Goldmacher, were organic chemists. And they had the job of coming up with room temperature liquid crystal mixtures, which is a really important aspect of the project, because you can't make a TV if you have to have it over the boiling point of water. Heilmeier worked with Zanoni, his technician there on the right, and Lucian Barton on the far left to figure out more about the theoretical uh, behavior behind dynamic scattering. How did it work? How could they maybe improve upon its behavior for display applications? And they built devices, like the test pattern I showed you earlier, or, and this is probably my favorite of the devices that they demonstrated at the press conference, though it may not look quite as impressive. Remember Bernard Lechner, the guy who was looking at that ferroelectric display? He was looking like this, and the camera was pointing at him. He built this. He called it an exerciser. It's two rows of 18 pixels each, each one operating at the speed of a TV signal. Imagine that each of these is a pixel on your TV today. Right? This was a proof of concept. You could, if you could scale this up, 
you could make a full TV. Now, each one of these, this was done with discrete electronic components, no integrated circuits. So each of these had an active switching element, like a transistor behind it. All right? This was what we call the first active matrix display. And if you've looked at a cell phone, laptop, or television that relied on a, a liquid crystal screen, that is its ancestor. Basically the same circuitry under, underlying this exerciser is found in all of those today. Lechner actually got an award from the IEEE for that uh, a couple of years ago. So with all of these prototypes and such put together, RCA goes public in 1968, and as you can see, the press thought that this was a big deal. Super thin TV, instant blinds, all sorts of new possibilities. They really loved that uh, picture at the bottom there, the one in the corner. That's Robert Lohman, another engineer associated with the project, holding up his wristwatch next to the first liquid crystal clock. An all-electronic clock with no moving parts, as RCA liked to pitch it. I love that picture too, but I love it also for what it symbolizes, because here's something I found out when I called him and asked him about this. A few minutes after that picture was taken, the clock died. That was apparently the last photo on the photographer's reel, and then the clock just stopped working. It's iconic, it's beautiful, but it shows that RCA was not ready for prime time yet when it came to production, right? They had to actually turn it into something scalable and manufacturable uh, for the masses. And to do that, they weren't really prepared for that at RCA's central research lab. They needed to go to the operating divisions. They needed to go to people who were experts at manufacturing. And particularly, they turned to the electronic components division in Somerville, New Jersey. They were the folks who specialized in integrated circuits. And there were two reasons they went there. One, they were already working on displays, but their displays were using LEDs light-emitting diodes, not LCDs, but they still thought, you know, new forms of displays, this is a good potential partnership there. The other thing was liquid crystals, because they don't emit light, that low power requirement thing I mentioned earlier, they were one of the first display technologies they could find that might be compatible with integrated circuits that were in existence at that point. And they thought that would be useful to have the display and the integrated circuitry working on them in the same general area. So they set up a group. The group gradually grows so big that they have to move and set up a pilot plant in a nearby town called Raritan. And everything is going along swimmingly, except for one small problem. They don't have um, money, which is a bit of an issue. RCA is willing to let them experiment, but they have to go out and uh, find the money to support it themselves. So they go out to a couple of different companies, and they're able to raise, with a little help from a, a, a friend of theirs in the PR department, in the sales department, a quarter million dollars of funding, which in the 60s was nothing to sneeze at. 50,000 came from the Jervis Corporation, which specialized in automobile glass. They wanted to make a dynamic scattering rear view mirror that would allow you to cut out nighttime glare from headlights behind you. So that seemed like an interesting application. Vita Root, a tabulation and gauge company, wanted, wanted to uh, develop a, a, a gas pump readout. So they offered $100,000 to make a liquid crystal display gas pump readout, which, now that we can find them all the time, seems like a pretty good investment. And then there was Ashley Butler. Ashley Butler was an advertising firm which was investing in the technology you can see on the right. That is a point-of-purchase advertising display, which hopefully, there we go. It's an animated display. This one you would put behind your bar to sell whiskey. 
The technology uh, itself isn't especially complicated, but scaling it up, making the detailed drawings like that, figuring out how to sequentially activate it, and then seal the display so that it would hold up as you shipped it and got it out there, that was, all of those things were complicated and required new workflows and manufacturing procedures. So that's pretty impressive. This uh, display, by the way, is in the collections of the Chemical Heritage Foundation, which has been renamed recently the Science History Institute. The folks at the pilot plant in Raritan were very proud of themselves, but they did feel a little bit out at sea. It seemed like they were going out and getting all of the money and that management didn't really know what they wanted to do with it. In actuality, that's not quite true. Here at Hagley, you can find a marketing report where RC, RCA went into great detail about the various products that you could use liquid crystals to make. They actually reached out to Heilmeyer at Princeton and folks from Raritan and marketing staff at New York to come up with a long list of applications. These are just a few of the graphics. I wish I could have included them all. They're great. Uh, dashboard readouts, signage, an electronic curtain to provide privacy with a push of a button. And look at the corner there, a flat screen TV. 1970. Now, I should note that they said black and white only at this point. Colors way down the road. But after looking at all these applications, they concluded that LCDs have, quote, relatively small market potential except for alphanumeric displays, point-of-purchase advertising signs, and flat glass glazing. And if those three categories sound really familiar, it's because those were the three things they were working on at Raritan that I just talked about on the last slide. That's what they saw as having the most commercial potential, at least in the short term, given the size of the market and the state of the technology as they understood it through consultation with folks at the labs and the factories. Now, it is possible that folks working at Raritan could have introduced new applications that would have won over the, the, uh, the management team and possibly persuaded them to invest more money. They were working, and I have pictures if you're interested, uh, of wristwatch mock-ups that they were working on. The pictures are actually now in the Hagley's collection, but they're, they're in my book too. Um, and they were really serious about this. Uh, there were, however, uh, sources of opposition, including one source they really didn't expect, which was from within RCA Labs itself. Because the RCA scientists and engineers, after developing the technology in Princeton, thought, oh, well, we've done our part. What's going on now in Raritan? Manufacturing it is on them. And they themselves were getting a little bit disillusioned at the lack of progress. And we can see this in perhaps the most remarkable document I found during the entirety of my research. A licensing report that was modified by some joker with a sense of humor, some scissors, and some rubber cement. It was meant to be given out to other firms who wanted to license RCA's liquid crystal patents and make their own. But as you can see, it took on a bit of a new meaning. The title page here says liquid crystal displays, RCA liquid crystals, rather. And underneath, they stuck in a two-word warning, be suspicious. Here on a page about liquid crystal preparation, how you make the mixtures, they pasted in a goofy scientist and said that it was simple and idiot-proof. But the most damning comment was this one down here. Advantages of liquid crystal displays, the list reads. And then next to it, our anonymous author has inserted a forward warning, Nixie tubes are better. Now, I don't know how many of you remember Nixie tubes. Some of you are nodding, so you're familiar. A Nixie tube, that's a Nixie tube up there on the slide. 
It's an earlier form of electronic display. It's essentially a neon bulb with filaments that read 0 through 9 on it. And it's really, it looks really nice. There's a cool retro aesthetic associated with Nixie tubes today. But it's emitting its own light, which means it takes a lot of power. It's in a vacuum uh, glass, a glass enclosure with a vacuum surrounding it, which means that it's fragile and bulky. It's basically everything that the liquid crystal display is not, and someone saying that it's better. Now, because this is an anonymous report, I can't tell you whether or not this is a legitimate criticism, someone who actually believed these things, or someone making fun of a critic within the labs, right? Maybe they were saying, oh, there are these people around here who are saying what we're doing is, is silly or, or dumb. I don't know, but what I do know is that these ideas were being voiced, you can see the date up here, right? September 1971, which was not an especially good time to have a project that was in, um, in flux. Mostly because there was a new person in charge of RCA at that point. Not David Sarnoff, who we've seen a couple of times earlier, but his son, Robert. David Sarnoff climbed up through the ranks of RCA from the technical side of the business. He actually began working as an office boy at American Marconi and then became an operator uh, of their radios and then worked his way up that way. Robert Sarnoff went in through the sales and marketing side. He was actually president of NBC before becoming president of RCA. And he was very eager to make his mark on the business, both literally and figuratively. Literally, he introduced the RCA logo that many of you may have seen before, this blocky trigram. He replaced the meatball. And figuratively, he wanted to change RCA from an electronics company into a conglomerate. And you can see some of his purchases there. In May 1967, they purchased the Hertz Corporation, the rental car company. Later on, they purchased Banquet Frozen Foods. At that point, it was called FM Stamper. And then in February of 1971, they purchased Coronet Carpets. People used to joke that under Robert Sarnoff, RCA no longer stood for Radio Corporation of America. It stood for rugs, chickens, and autos. And of course, the question would come down to him from time to time, why, Robert Sarnoff, why would you do this? Why would you invest in all of these things that have nothing to do with RCA's core business? And he would say that the goal was to make RCA a major player in the computer market. They would take the profits from these other businesses and funnel them into electronic data processing. And to give you a sense of his ambitions, I have a short video clip which, if all goes according to plan, will play perfectly, and the sound will come through, and everything will be great. Did you ever wonder what your future will look like? How about trying this future on for size? Until now, computer advances have been made and measured in terms of what the computer could do for itself. Now we are in a decade of difference, a decade of what the computer can do for you. RCA has created the difference. We had to. 
because our man at the top, Mr. Robert Sarnoff, means business when he says RCA computers are going to be number two in the industry with 10% of the market by 1975. Well, we decided to work things out anew. Number two in the industry. That was his ambition with 10% market share. And, of course, maintaining our, all of RCA's other businesses, the new ones, like the rugs, chickens, and autos, and the old ones, like, you know, television, right? This was really quite ambitious when you think about it, and there was one major hurdle standing in the way of getting to that 10% market share, and you can spell it with three letters, IBM. Now, Sarnoff thought that they had a way around it, RCA would offer mainframes that were compatible with IBM software at a lower price. And they had a modest commercial success with their Spectra 70 mainframes, which were compatible with the famous System 360. The problem was it left them essentially following IBM's lead. So when IBM decided to announce a new system, they had to race to catch up. And they kept pouring more and more money into this just to keep pace and it simply wasn't effective. By September 1971, it had gotten so bad that they decided to sell off their computer business completely. They sold it to Sperry Univac for $127 million. It was the biggest business disaster, the Wall Street Journal reported, since the Edsel. And the effects were felt throughout the company because they immediately slashed at RCA Labs the budget by 10%. They literally decimated it, right? And that corresponded to a 6 to 7% staff cut. And who are the first people to get cut? Well, you have the computer folks. Certainly, they're going to get hit. But projects that are in a kind of marginal status, where they're not sure whether or not they have long-term uh, commercial potential, those are also vulnerable. And that's what happened to the LCDs. The RCA Liquid Crystal Group, started shrinking immediately. They either funneled people into other projects or some people left on their own. They let go of a few. George Heilmeyer ended up landing on his feet. He got a White House fellowship and left right before this uh, and later climbed up through the ranks to become head of DARPA. Things were even worse at Raritan. According to one engineer that I interviewed, they had 31 people on staff there in 1971 before the computer crisis hit. After the layoffs, they had eight. Now, they didn't stop LCD manufacturing completely, but they continued to rely on external contracts for companies that wanted to dip their toe into the technology, maybe get digital readouts for calculators or the like. But that wasn't a sustainable industry. It wasn't a sustainable um, business plan, right? So, spring of 1976, Robert Sarnoff, by the way, stays in the company until 1975. Spring of 1976, RCA sells off the liquid crystal operation to Timex, and that's the end of their involvement in the game. The new CEO was cutting the fat. Right? Now, it would be very easy for me to say that that is the end of the story, and that is the end of where RCA's involvement with liquid crystal displays and the, the subsequent industry that emerged, uh, that's, that's uh, where it all cuts off. But that's not quite true. Because I'd like to suggest in the last few minutes that RCA scientists and engineers continue to have an impact on the LCD industry and on the electronics industry more broadly 
even after RCA got out of the game. And they did it, I would argue, in three ways. One was through the development of new technologies. So this gentleman on the far left is named Wolfgang Helfrich. He worked with uh, Heilmeier for a few years at the end of the 1960s, beginning in the 1970s. And he was interested in the theoretical behavior, the building essentially mathematical models of how liquid crystal molecules behaved under applied fields. One day he approached Heilmeier, he said he had a new idea for a new type of display, essentially using a helical staircase of liquid crystal molecules to affect the passage of polarized light. He said he could make a new form of light shutter that would operate at much lower voltages, much lower power than you would use with dynamic scattering. And Heilmeier looked at it and said, that's great, except for one thing, it uses polarized light. He didn't think that they could get around the brightness issue. So he said, no thank you. And Helfrich went, got a new job, moved to Switzerland, and worked at Hoffman La Roche with his new colleague, Martin Schott, to develop what was known as the twisted pneumatic liquid crystal display. And if that diagram doesn't look familiar, I'm guessing that the display itself will. Those black numerals on gray that you probably saw on every calculator you had growing up, those are twisted pneumatic displays. Right? And in fact, the pixels on your laptop are essentially very tiny light shutters using the same technology. There's a backlight there, and then it's either allowing or blocking the passage of that light. Right? So one way that RCA scientists and engineers continued to affect the industry was creating new technologies. One way was creating new firms. One of the first firms to commercialize liquid crystal displays was called Optel. It was founded by a colleague of Heilmeier's, a fellow laser researcher named Zoltan Kish, who recruited Louis Zanoni, Heilmeier's technician, and a few other members of his team to start a company right down the road in Princeton. This was actually the company that ended up making the first liquid crystal wristwatch. You can see that they named a later line the Princetonian in honor of their, uh, their headquarters. Uh, and they later switched from using dynamic scattering displays to those twist and pneumatic ones I showed earlier. The last way that I would suggest that RCA scientists and engineers shaped the industry was by persuading innovators at other companies that liquid crystals had commercial merit. And we can see that very clearly in the case of Japan. So in May 1968, RCA holds its press conference, and there was press coverage all through the country. I showed you some of the headlines, but the press coverage was also international. And this is a Japanese newspaper that features some of the same pictures we've looked at earlier, right? Heilmeier looking at the display, and Lohman looking at his wristwatch. Now one of the people who saw this press coverage was a chemical engineer named Tomio Wada, who was working for the Hayakawa Electric Company. The Hayakawa Electric Company was trying to make a desktop calculator. And they needed a new display, because if you're going to make a portable calculator in particular, Nixie tubes may not cut it. It would work well if you plugged it in, but if you want to make it portable, like truly portable, you need some sort of display that works with lower power. And Wada saw this and said, maybe liquid crystals are the way to go. He approaches his boss, Tadashi Sasaki. Sasaki is interested and goes to Somerville to talk to RCA about partnering on this. This was an opportunity for them to get a foothold in this new industry if they were willing to team up. Unfortunately, the management at Somerville says they weren't, says essentially that's a very nice offer, but we're not really interested. We would be glad to let you license the technology for $3 million, but we're not going to team up on this particular project. So Sasaki goes home. He's a little disappointed, but he does have a license to work with the technology, and lo and behold, they do it. 
they successfully create the first liquid crystal display readout calculator. And it started the company on its way to fame and fortune because they then invested and became one of the leaders in liquid crystal display technology to this day. And I bet you've all heard of them, but maybe not with that name. Because a little bit later, the Hayakawa Electric Company changed its name to Sharp. And Sharp would become a leader in liquid crystal display development, eventually succeeding where RCA failed in fulfilling David Sarnoff's request for a TV you could hang on the wall. There it is. Two decades after the press conference, two years after RCA ceased to exist, Sharp built and demonstrated this 14-inch color LCD television. What's really interesting to me is that by this point, as I said, RCA was gone. But when you look at this television, or really any of the flat panel televisions we use today, and look beyond the picture on the screen and look at the, the technology behind it, all of those technologies can trace their roots one way or another back to RCA and back to New Jersey. The liquid crystal light shutters are twisted pneumatic materials. The room temperature liquid crystal mixtures were first pioneered by Castellano, Goldmacher, and the other chemists on Heilmeyer's team. Each one of those pixels is switched by an active matrix circuit based on the same principles that Bernie Lechner developed for that exerciser I showed you earlier. The world of screens in which we live in our homes, in our offices, everywhere else, testifies to the lasting influence that RCA scientists and engineers exerted on the electronics industry, even now, today, half a century after they first unveiled those prototypes at 30 Rockefeller Plaza. And if you'd like to learn more about this subject, might I recommend a book? It's called The TVs of Tomorrow, and it would provide a much more detailed explanation than I've given you here. And uh, with that, I'll be glad to take any questions you might have. Thank you very much.